It's a familiar scene in movies. A beloved character is thought to be dead, leaving behind a grieving family whose whole world has been shattered. After enough screen time has passed to extract just enough heartache, the character is then revealed to be alive after all. And there is often an emotional moment when the hero returns home to the speechless astonishment of his loved ones. The payoff for viewers is great. Very rarely is that character then forced to leave a second time. As far as the plot is concerned, he's done his part. And as the camera turns to other things, we're confident that the emotional roller coaster ride is over for the weary family, and we're sure that they'll now be able to put their lives back together and live happily ever after. Imagine having to say goodbye to Jesus, your faithful friend, your tender king. He was the desire of nations. There he hung on the cross, though he did absolutely nothing wrong. But you watched him die all the way. There was no question about it. No chance that maybe he wasn't really dead, like T'Challa or Aragorn or Commissioner Gordon or so many others. No, you saw your Jesus die and your whole world falls apart. But then amazingly, somehow he returns in the flesh, more powerful, more glorious than ever, but still the same Jesus, still your friend, still the shepherd, now the risen Lord, the Savior of the world, the one person who could put your life back together and make everything right happily ever after. Now imagine having to say goodbye to him again after just 40 days of him sort of popping in and out of your sight. You're closer to him than ever before. You're more full of faith and excitement than ever before, more full of hope than ever before. All he said was really true, and now he was with you in a way like you could never have anticipated. Heaven was right there in the person of Jesus Christ, standing before you, glorified. But now he's leaving. You would have to say goodbye again, for good this time, until you went to eternity. And you'd have to stay behind, left to go into all the world so that others could also be adopted into the family of God. Our text tonight covers a unique transition period in the history of God's people. The Lord ascends, but the church age is yet to begin. That would be 10 days later at Pentecost. The verses that we'll see tonight divide into three neat sections. The disciples watch, they wait, and they wield the word of God. First in verses 9 through 11, we see them watching. Verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, he being Jesus... While they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Many scholars feel that this is referring to not some generic cumulonimbus cloud, but the Shekinah glory of God receiving Jesus into heaven. He was taken up, meaning he was lifted and exalted in his ascension. Jesus, of course, was also lifted up on the cross, like the bronze serpent in the wilderness. He was lifted up in his ascension. And now he is lifted up through the witness of your life and through my life. In Psalm 99, we're commanded twice to exalt the Lord our God. And Paul said that Christ is to be magnified in us, whether in life or in death. It's our job to lift up Christ through the testimony of our lives now, as we exemplify what it means to be Christian, as we show the world who he is and what he's done, as we share what he has said and show his power in us. The day the Lord was taken out of their sight uh, must have been a tough one. 
But of course, they knew he wasn't really gone. After all, one of his very last promises was that he would never leave them or us or forsake them. In verse 10, these disciples get an instant reminder of the reality of the supernatural realm and God's presence in our lives. I, I like this. Just as Jesus was leaving, which would have been difficult on its own, the Lord gives a little encouraging view into the supernatural there with them. Verse 10, And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Two angels of heaven revealed that they were also in the audience that day. I always wonder if they show up in a puff of smoke or, or what happens, but you're in a crowd similar to this one, standing on a hilltop, watching Jesus ascend, and then all of a sudden you look over and there's two angels. They've been there all along, but you just hadn't seen them before that moment. Now I find it interesting that in this case, no one is shown or recorded as being terrified, being afraid falling down in fear. That's usually what happens when an angel shows up, let alone two of them. But then again, what's an angel or two in comparison to the glorious power of the risen Christ? I think this is almost comical in the way that it's presented. They're watching the risen Christ and they're looking for him, looking for him. There's two angels over there. Do you think Jesus is still back up in there? It's almost as if they don't even notice the angels. Luke tells us that the disciples were watching the skies intently. They fixed their gaze. And who could blame them? They don't want to miss anything. And these were, uh, you know, days when they kept hearing rumors, hey, he was with us on the road to Emmaus. And remember, those guys ran back to Jerusalem to tell others. Or, hey, we saw him over here. We saw him over there. Jesus wasn't with them day in and day out during this period. He would kind of pop in and pop out. Uh, appearing to some groups here, some groups there, spending some, you know, shorter amount of times, longer amount of times. And so they were watching intently. They didn't want to miss a thing. But the angels pulled the plug on the viewing party in verse 11. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, some commentators make a lot out of this statement, saying that it's this huge rebuke to the disciples. What you find if you read commentaries, especially on, uh, in the Gospels or the Book of Acts, when we see the disciples doing stuff, it's a pretty quick knee-jerk that commentators seem to have to criticize the, the disciples and the apostles, to always sort of turn their nose up at things that they say and things that they do. And sure, admittedly, uh, these guys made some significant mistakes, uh, just like we do. Uh, but a lot of the commentaries immediately say, look at this rebuke. They slapped him in the face with this rebuke. And I don't think we have to read it that way. I don't see that here. They're giving instruction, to be sure, but the disciples didn't want to miss anything. And so what do the angels tell them? The angels say, hey, look, it's okay for you to leave. You don't need to hang out. Nothing else is going to happen. Uh, it's like when you go to a movie and you don't know if there's a stinger after the credits. Those after credit scenes, that especially like the Marvel movies are famous for, those are called stingers. It's no fun to sit through the credits if there's no stinger. <laughs> Nobody actually wants to look at all of the credits, right? And so uh, the angels assure them, look, Jesus is gone. You're not going to miss anything here. When Jesus comes back, you don't have to be on star watch to see it. No one's going to miss it. And in their statement here, they affirm some important truths about the second coming. 
Very important doctrinal ideas about it. First, we learn here that it will be visible. This is in contradiction to groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, who teach that Jesus returned invisibly. He came back. We just didn't know it. They say here, the angels, that the Lord will return with the clouds. Now, this is a frequent image in prophetic passages, especially in the Old Testament. But, you know, for us, it's yet another reminder that Bible prophecy should be interpreted literally. You know, Daniel and Revelation and Matthew all prophesy of the Messiah, and they say he's coming with the clouds. And these angels clearly mark this as a true literal expectation that we should have. No, he's actually going to come with clouds. There's going to be clouds of glory around him, and it's just sort of another little uh, stack on the pile showing that, yeah, just like they're saying, hey, this same Jesus, he's going to come back the same way that you saw him go. He's going to come with clouds, just like the Old Testament prophecies say. That's not just Jewish apocalyptic language. It's not just an analogy. It's not just some fanciful idea or imagination. He's really coming, really with clouds. You should expect it. And then we also learn here, we recognize that Jesus will return to the same place from, when, uh, from which he left. We'll be told in a moment it's the Mount of Olives. Zechariah chapter 14 says this specifically, and that when the Lord touches down that time, the mountain will be cleaved in two and a valley will be made. For now the disciples were instructed not to watch the sky for his return, but instead they would begin a life of watching for the Lord's leading watching for his direction, watching for him to give them opportunities to be used. Uh, they, I, I think, are commended for just watching. They wanted to see the Lord. Of course, there were other things going on. It was feast time, and so Jerusalem was abuzz with all kinds of activity. They weren't like, how long is this ascension going to take? I've got to get out of here. I'm double parked, or I've got something better to do, right? I mean, they're watching. Now, what's Jesus going to do? Is Jesus around? Is Jesus going to do something? And we see that that's a mindset that they're going to have, not just looking into the sky. The angels say, hey, stop looking in the sky. But now they're going to live a life of watching for the Lord in their midst, watching for him to lead, watching for an opportunity, watching for something that uh, he might be presenting to them to learn or to apply or to do or to be a part of. And so they were going to live a life of watching, and we should too. We're a very distractible culture. Our culture is all about distraction, right? Everything is get it into our hands, get it into our cars, get it, get Wi-Fi everywhere, get screens everywhere. We don't want to have our thoughts to ourselves. We, we don't want to just, just we got to be distracted. I've got to have videos and music and texts and the notifications and all these things coming in all the time, all the time, all the time. And it's a good encouragement to us to have a, a heart and a mindset of, yeah, I, I want to make sure that I'm watching for the Lord in my life. The Lord still leads his people. The Lord still speaks to his people. The Lord still reveals himself in different ways to his people. And we want to be the kind of people who are watching for the Lord. Even in the hustle and bustle of a busy Jerusalem, you know, proverbially speaking, we want to be people who are watching for the Lord, and that's what uh, the disciples here would do. But first they had to do some waiting, which is what we would see in verses 12 through 14. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. The distance here is a little more than half a mile, but note how Luke slid in there this phrase, the Sabbath day's journey reference. It's my feeling that the Holy Spirit through Dr. Luke is dropping a little hint about this transitional time that might help us discern 
uh, an answer to what has become a very controversial moment in the history of the church. We'll just tuck that away for a minute. Verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord and in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. These believers, about 120 of them will be told, show a wonderful unity and humility during this waiting period. There's no name calling. There's no, where were you when I was at the foot of the cross? They had one heart, even though they were a mix of young and old, men and women, tax collectors and zealots, educated and unlettered. The local church doesn't need to be broken down into 1,000 ministry segments where each specific kind kind of sequesters themselves off together. Um, there's nothing wrong with targeted ministries from time to time, but um, I would say one of the... Um, one of the weaknesses of, of modern westernized church is that there is an emphasis on, well, let's get all the like groups together and separate from one another. Young singles only with young singles, and you don't need to mix with other people, and seniors with seniors, and we're always going to always segment. And again, I'm not, we're not against targeted ministry. We have apples of gold for ladies. We have a men's study, those sorts of things. But the mentality shouldn't be, I step into the church and let me just find the people who are just like me and I glom onto them. Who cares what these other people are doing? That's not the idea. Here we see quite a mix of people in just wonderful unity and wonderful communion. The church needs communion with the Lord and with one another. Now we learn in verse 14 that Jesus' brothers had become disciples. The Lord had at least four half-brothers. They are named James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. During his earthly ministry, they did not believe he was the Messiah. In fact, they thought he was out of his mind. These stubborn loved ones of yours that you're thinking of, who you just know, man, your life would be revolutionized if you just believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, those family members that you've shared again and again with and, and, and you're not sure what else to do, just keep praying for them. Don't give up. God loves them. The gospel can reach them. Jesus had spent nearly three decades in the same house as his brothers, but they refused to accept him as Lord until after the resurrection. And that should be an encouragement to us that God can do what seems impossible in your family. That person who you think they are never going to believe, they are never going to give their lives to Christ. Uh, the gospel can reach them. Keep praying. Don't give up hope. When you think of what we see Jesus' brothers doing in the Gospels. They come to haul Jesus away to the loony bin. They say, hey, this guy's out of his mind. We need, to, we, need to, we need to clamp down on what he's doing. And of course, that doesn't happen. But they thought that he's crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Of course, he's not the Messiah. And they lived with Jesus Christ for 30 years. 30 years, right? And so think then about what we will learn in the rest of the New Testament. Think about the impossibility of the idea that Jesus' brother James would become an apostle himself, the man who called the Messiah crazy. Or how two of his brothers would go from writing off their big brother to becoming writers of the New Testament. The letter of James and the letter of Jude, written by Jesus' half-brothers. 
And so, of course, it hurts to see our family members refusing to believe, but while there's life, there's hope, and so keep praying and keep seeking the Lord on how you can uh, witness to them. When Luke says they continued in prayer, he's using strong language here. It means they were attending to it constantly. They were holding on in prayer is the sense. Their waiting wasn't passive. It was involved and alive. It was a personal and a communal endeavor. And it was full of corporate prayer. This waiting led to something else, the wielding of God's word as they applied it to themselves. Verse 15, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. We were told that during Jesus' 40 days with the disciples, he opened their minds to understand the word of God. With the others, Simon Peter had been pondering through, no doubt, many passages of the Old Testament, and several of the Psalms kept tugging at his heart. Now remember, Jesus had given them no plan. He had given them no specifics about what should be done to fill the spot left vacant by Judas. So they waited, and they prayed, and they meditated on the Scriptures. And as Peter read or remembered these Messianic Psalms, something clicked in his mind. It leapt off the, the page, is what we would say. And he thought, oh, this prophecy that David was talking about was, in part, literally fulfilled by the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. And so what impact does the rest of this passage have on us right now? He started applying the Word of God. His wielding of the Scripture grew into a conviction and he felt compelled to draw the attention of the rest of the disciples there to this section of God's Word and say, hey, we need to apply this thing. This is talking to us. This is speaking to us. This is giving direction to us. He says in verse 17, for he, Judas, was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Everyone in this transition period understood that there was an important role for what is referred to as the 12 in God's plan for the church. There were more than 12 apostles. We'll discover that in the book of Acts. Uh, and there were more than 12 plus Paul. There were other guys named apostles specifically in the Bible. James, the brother of Jesus, for example, is called an apostle. He's not the James in the list we just read. So was Barnabas. He's called an apostle. But there was a specific office of the 12 that is talked about in the New Testament. And they had been given particular relationship to Israel according to Jesus. And they were to be pillars of the church. They were a part of this ministry. Peter's talking about the ministry of the 12. And Peter knew all of this. And so having only 11 guys, well, that simply isn't going to do. We've got a problem, he realizes. But Jesus hadn't addressed this issue. Jesus hadn't given them a to-do list on this. And so what was the fix? Well, before we get there, Luke gives us a biographical parenthesis on the death of Judas. Verse 18, Now this man, Judas, purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. Luke, the physician, couldn't help himself, right? <laughs> Depends on whatever industry you're in, you have like industry stories, right? If you're a surgeon, you want to tell the stories of stuff going wrong. If you're a cop, you want to tell the stories of, you know, hardcore interactions, right? So I, I think Dr. Luke wanted to include that. 
But some deniers of the Bible try to cite an inconsistency here. There isn't one. The accusation that's leveled is that in the Gospels we're told the priests bought the field, but here it's attributed to Judas. Ah, they say. Well, the truth is when ill-gotten funds were brought to the temple and were donated, those funds were returned. If a return wasn't possible, the money would be used to buy something to benefit the community in the name of the giver rather than go into the temple treasury. And so they say the same thing in the Gospels. They say, well, we certainly can't put this blood money in the temple treasury. Didn't you give them the blood money? That's fine. We can't put it into the treasury. Go out and buy a field. It'll be the potter's field and put it in the name of Judas. What a sad legacy left by Judas Iscariot, a life and a name forever ruined. Wherever we find ourselves tonight, it's not too late to set our course to be following hard after the Lord and allow that to be our legacy. Alfred Nobel, of course, is known for the Peace Prize and his other prizes. Uh, it's nearly forgotten in the common culture that he was an arms dealer. He invented dynamite. He was responsible, therefore, for countless numbers of deaths. After an accidental obituary was printed, thinking that he was dead, he saw this obituary. It condemned him as a merchant of death. And it just changed the course of his life. He decided to change course and to leave a different legacy than the merchant of death. And so now his legacy is the peace prize, right? Of course, we aim at an even higher target than Alfred did. We aim to join our lives to the eternal legacy of Jesus Christ, that we be a part of his work and the lives that he's saving. Now on to Peter's suggested solve for the 12th apostle problem. Verse 20. It is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. The references are taken from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. They're an interesting read if you want to look over them later tonight or tomorrow. Here's what we see. Peter looks at their current situation through the lens of Scripture. And he found out, oh wow, this Psalm that I'm reading addresses what's going on in our lives and it gives me a directive to follow. When those passages came alive in his heart, he understood that they contained a command to be obeyed, not ignored, not explained away, not put off, but he realized, oh, not only is this talking about Judas, it's now talking about something that I need to do. This is something that needs to be applied and obeyed. Now, some commentators brutally criticize Peter for his actions in this text. They think this whole business from verses 15 through 26 was a huge sinful mistake. The idea is that the church obviously should have waited for Paul to be the 12th apostle. He's the natural since, after all, look how great he was, look how smart he was, look how effective he was. They have the nerve to suggest that they know better sitting 2,000 years later at a desk than this group of 120 people who had been in the presence of the risen Christ, people who were days and days in prayer meeting together, people who had just been instructed by Jesus himself, having the understanding, uh, their understanding open concerning the scriptures. Now, yeah, but they don't know what they're doing. Peter gets up because he, he's, he's brash and he's making all these decisions. Okay, did you come to that conclusion after you had a multi-day prayer meeting with 120 other Christians just waiting on the Lord? We're so quick, or some are so quick to just criticize and give a thumbs down to the things that we see in passages like this. But here, I'll let Pastor David Guzik summarize what we're seeing. 
He says, the disciples obeyed. The disciples were in unity and fellowship. The disciples were in prayer. The disciples were in the scriptures. The disciples wanted to do God's will. The disciples used sanctified common sense. The disciples did what Jesus did. The disciples did what they could to rely on God. And I'd add to that a total agreement throughout the process of all 120 people. No one ever stands up and says, I don't think we should do this. We should just wait indefinitely for some magic apostle to show up. That's not what happens. Uh, not to mention the fact that there is never a rebuke from the Lord recorded in the New Testament about this decision. And Paul clearly considered himself distinct from the 12 in his writings. At the end of the day, the office of the 12th member of the 12 was important. It was necessary for the foundation of the church. And it was brought to Peter's attention through his reading of the word of God. Let another take his office. But how would this 12th member be selected since Jesus wasn't there to choose as he had the others? Or was he? I think the solution was pretty elegant. Look at verse 21. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism, uh, from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, whose surname was Justice, and Matthias. So they go back to the pool of guys that were there when Jesus first did choose the 12. You have that scene in the Gospels where he gathers those who believe in him and he hand selects the 12. Had Judas not been around that day, it stands to reason that from that pool, a 12th member would have been selected and apparently these two guys qualified. It's not a bad idea for a fisherman from Galilee. All 120 people are on board. No one dissents from this. No one argues against this. No one says, hey, you need to not do this. They're being thoughtful. They're being purposeful. They're being scriptural. And they give us a great example to follow on a devotional level. When a scripture tugs at our hearts, don't just dismiss it. Don't assume, I don't really need to obey that right now. I paged open to the word of God and something blew my mind and I realized it's speaking to me and giving me a directive or a command. I don't need to do that right now. You know, these critical scholars would have had this group wait at least 10 years before filling the 12th spot with Paul. Paul's not showing up that day or the next day. It's going to be a decade at least before Paul's even a Christian. And looking back, they say they should have waited for Paul. Really? Aside from the fact that these people clearly didn't get along with Paul, <laughs> they didn't jive real well with Paul. At first, when Paul comes to Jerusalem, they all say, yeah, we don't want to see him. And then Barnabas says, no, no, you want to see him. And then he's there for a little while, and they say, you should probably leave. And then by the time he comes back, they say, hey, uh, we want you to do this kind of song and dance in the temple and pay for this vow and stuff like that. But Paul and the 12, and they loved each other in the Lord and they worked together, but they had separate functions. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. The 12 have a particular relationship to the 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus said. And so, man, I, I just... I don't want to follow the example of a critical scholar that says Peter saw this scripture tugging at his heart telling him to obey in a certain way. He should have waited 10 years to obey it. 
don't give yourself that counsel when the Word of God speaks to you. Uh, certainly, we don't want to wait a decade before obeying our Lord. When the Word of God speaks to you, when some verse leaps off the page, obey it. If you're not sure how to obey it, get with other godly believers in your church and pray about it and figure it out. That's what these disciples did. And even when they had a plan, they went back to prayer again. Verse 24, and they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. Now we might read that last line about Judas and think, wait a minute, is this saying that because Judas didn't live up to a certain standard, he got kicked out? The idea of being communicated here is not that, well, Judas messed up and he made a big mistake, so he was kicked out. Not at all. I mean, compare him to Peter. Peter made a huge mistake about the same time that Judas did. He denied the Lord three times before his crucifixion, and yet here is Peter holding office. Well, what's the difference? The difference was that Peter believed. He really belonged to the Lord. He repented. He was restored. Judas never belonged, we're told. He was a devil. He deserted his post and went his way. Verse 26, And they cast their lots. The lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Aha, many scholars say. Look, look at them using this unchurch-like method. Look at them going back to this weird Old Testament thing. Hey, it's not the church age yet. The church hasn't been born yet. That's going to happen in the next chapter. Remember that little hint about the Sabbath day's journey? I do think it's a little breadcrumb left for us to signal just how unique this transition period was. These were Jews, faithful Jews, seeking to be faithful to the Jewish scriptures. They're thinking about these different things, and they're thinking about what they've learned. And Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And so their behavior is entirely consistent with what faithful obedience believers would do at that point. Now, this would be the last time that lots were ever cast because in the church age we have the Holy Spirit to guide us and we have the completed word of God that we can wield for our decisions. But it made sense that they used it here. We're not going to pull out lots. No, you know, um and thumum here, okay? Don't keep attending a church that casts lots. <laughs> but it would make sense that they used it here for one last time. Those who suggest that Paul was the true replacement for Judas often use as the argument the fact that, well, Matthias fades away from history. We don't see anything about him in the book of Acts. Look, the Lord swept him away, dissatisfied with him as a choice. That's not really an honest piece of evidence. We know nothing nothing of James, the son of Alphaeus, or Thaddeus. What do you know about the disciple Thaddeus? Nothing. Not just from the book of Acts, but from the Gospels either. None of the exploits of, the, uh, uh, of anyone in the 12 other than Peter and John are recorded in Acts. And John doesn't really do anything either. He's just with Peter. So we see stuff that Peter's doing. We see John hanging out with Peter sometimes. We see James just die. And nothing else is recorded of any of the rest of the guys. And so it's not a good argument to say, well, Matthias faded from Scripture. You would, have to, you would have to disqualify nine of the apostles then, or more. Church history does tell us that Matthias took the gospel to Cappadocia, the coast of the Caspian Sea. One historian records he laid down his life for the gospel in what is modern-day Georgia, the country, not the state. <laughs> 
Some commentators would have had the believers wait for the great one, Saul of Tarsus, right? Because the idea is he was so great. He was so cut out for it. He was so smart and so effective. But God doesn't just wait for great people to do his work. He takes all kinds. What an encouragement that God might tap any one of us on the shoulder here tonight to do something we never expected as we remain faithful to him. Matthias had been around a long time. But we don't see him demanding a spot. He didn't nominate himself that night. On the flip side, we also see remarkable humility and justice. Effectively, he and Matthias were equally qualified. God didn't choose justice for that office, but did justice split off and start his own church and say, well, I'm an apostle. I don't care what anybody says. No. He remained and was no doubt used in many wonderful ways that we'll learn about when we get to heaven. So in the end, whether God taps us for a particular office, a particular position, or a particular opportunity, that's not consequential. It's just the fact that we want to be numbered with the disciples, right? We want to be people who are numbered with the disciples. And that means we will be people who are watching for the Lord in our lives, waiting on him, and wielding his word, doing whatever he asks, when he asks it. That's Christian living. That's the kind of living that leaves a great legacy of spiritual power, the kind we want to work toward. Amen. Amen.